Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome back for another episode of the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. And this is actually our second installment. We didn't quite announce it on the first one, did we, Lacey? We did not. Uh, but we're doing a monthly series uh, where Lacey will come on the podcast and we're going to call it What's Up in the Workplace. And basically what we're going to do is talk about trends in the workplace and HR. And, and we'll just basically talk about articles and ideas that we run across. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'm excited to have Lacey back. Thank you. Part of Pillow. I'm going to start with this first article and it's called Brace Yourself. <laughs> we don't cuss much on the podcast, but it's called the title No Assholes Allowed. <laughs> it's by Andrea Ozias. I'm going to butcher that last name. Sorry, Andrea. Uh, she's at World at Work and this was in the Workspan magazine, March 2018 edition. So a colleague of mine uh, sent it to us and I thought this was pretty fascinating. So basically what this uh, this guy had taken over as CEO and, uh, or maybe he built the business from the ground up. I'm not really quite sure. But one thing was clear to him is that in his, in his time, either in other businesses or in this current business, he didn't want assholes as they call them in, mm-hmm. in his company because he felt like that's what destroys the the culture the business and results will um either negative or positive go along with that right so how did you kind of had, had this hit you i i think it's so interesting because we spend a lot of time talking about culture and how important culture is and and the impact of not hiring the right people so this touched on on all of that and sometimes when i will do training for clients around harassment in the workplace. Those those have really clear definitions of what unlawful harassment is. And there's also this like kind of nebulous group of folks that I will kind of joke and say they're equal opportunity jerks, that they don't pick and choose groups of people. They're just kind of awful to everybody. And so this article kind of resonated with that, those folks that aren't aligned with the organization's values and really don't treat people well. It's funny that the so the titles the title no assholes allowed. I always thought like if I was to write a book, it would be called like how not to be an asshole. You know, like <laughs> kind of like a how to win friends and influence people yes. sort of book. But I always felt like it's it's to me is such a simple thing like to be a good person and mm-hmm. to be authentic and trustworthy and all those things. But you'd be surprised how many people get that wrong. And I hear here's a CEO who wants to basically create that sort of credo within his organization to say like, we're only hiring people that are team players. People are going to abide by the, the he has a six core values. The company's Baird's, I believe. And they have six core values. And it's clients come first integrity is irreplaceable and and he puts in parens um 
this is where the no asshole rule fits so that integrity is irreplaceable is that quality is our measure of success. The best financial advice is the result of expertise and teamwork. How we success is as important as if we succeed and we seek personal balance in home work and community involvement. So yeah. What do you, how do you, what do you think about those? those I think the values are, are great. I mean, I, what I like how he starts this article, he defines what, what the you know workplace asshole is and he talks about you know the definition of a jerk as being somebody who's irritating or a contemptible person and you know articulates that everybody pretty much knows who these folks are they're the people that are disrespectful they're passive aggressive they don't have direct conversations with with other people they talk about people behind their back they say unkind things and every organization you know or a lot of organizations have core values or principles that employees and you you know they're we kind of think of them as being things that we aspire to be but but this article what i like is these are like foundational things Absolutely. i mean we both have kids and this is these are things that we are teaching teach our little ones you know just to be kind to one on you know one another treat people with respect treat others how you want to be treated and how he correlates that with a successful organization and how it impacts the bottom line and and the growth of the company and how important that is so it really really resonated yeah. with me the <clears throat> towards the end of the article there's a point where he was saying like the hardest part is when like this shiny new person shows up who on the surface seems amazing, but you know, like there's something underlying there that's just not right. Like Mm -hmm. probably not a team player or is about themselves. And to think like, Oh, it'll be fine. It'll work out. And that's just a miss. I think on a lot of leadership is to say like, let's just hire the person anyways, because they're going to be a rock star and they're going to kill it. But that's not the the right move. No, not at all. And I am constantly telling the companies that I work with, you know, you can train most any skill. You know, you can teach people how to um, do the job. This type of stuff is much more difficult to train. So hiring for fit, people that can demonstrate those behaviors is really important. He also talks about what happens if you've got those people that you've identified that there's like a miss there, there's something that's not aligned, and you don't do anything about it. You don't have a conversation with them. You don't give them feedback. It's an incredible failure on the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to end this article with this point. Uh, there's a quote. It's actually towards the middle of the article. And Paul Purcell, who's that CEO we're talking about, he says, if you give me money and time, I can recreate any product or service, but I can't recreate a culture. And even though culture is a competitive advantage for many organizations, it's on the back burner, but there's a real dollar value to it. End quote. Absolutely. I, I I love that. that's such an impactful quote because it's so true. Like anybody with a pile of cash can go start a company and probably recreate the product, the packaging, all that stuff, the marketing. But it's the culture, it's the people within it that actually make it much different. And grow and be sustainable. Yeah. So Absolutely. I think, I think it's great. So. so I love that. So the title of that, No Assholes Allowed. I just want to say that one more time. <laughs> and that was in Workspan magazine. Yeah. All right. So um, an article that um, actually another colleague here shared with us is actually from the Society for Human Resource Management. So another one from SHRM. Recent article came out March 1st um, of this year by Stephen Miller, and it's titled Severance Tied to Tenure and Position as Formal Policies Decline. And so in the work that I'm doing with clients, um, and it actually, it's interesting, this last like 
few weeks, it seems like there has been a lot of transitions within really? the organizations that I'm working with. And we kind of tend to see things kind of come in waves. I've had uh, the challenge and, you know, been been asked to support with coming up with some transition packages or severance. Do they ever amounts. have anything in place, like a policy ahead of time? No. So that's what's so interesting. So <laughs> it ties in um, well with this article. It and... does. So um, Lee Hecht Harrison and Compensation Res- Resources, they're a pay consultancy. They did a survey um, last year and they surveyed 350 senior HR leaders at companies here in the United States. Pretty small sample um, size. <laughs> it is a small sample. But I think that it's uh, it's probably transferable because it's what I'm seeing even in my much smaller group, what he talks about or what this group talks about is that about 88% of the companies that pay severance when termination is due, they they do it either for a reduction in force or there's a restructure. Only 13% do so when termination is for cause and only 6% Hmm. provide severance on retirement. So there's a ton of statistics in here that we can talk through. The point of the article is really just that most organizations don't have a formal policy about it. And the, the purpose of that, I agree with, with that too, is that you know a severance or a transition package at the time of termination is meant to be dynamic and flexible. Yeah. What is important to one person might not be important to another. So true. So having the ability to really provide this package, which is meant to help somebody land on their feet, be able to continue to support their own family after a, you know, a separation... We want that to be flexible for those folks. So I agree with, you know, the fact that many organizations are either moving this way. It's sort of what I've seen for the last 10 years. I haven't really seen a shift. Um, Maybe prior there had been really set policies about, you know, when you leave, this is the the amount. Another thing I'll point out before we kind of jump into some of the stats here is that most of the time when organizations offer severance, they're including a release of claims with it. So an employee, as they're leaving, they're going to sign what we call a separation agreement um, where they waive their right to any claim against the organization. And a lot of times there's other things included in there, terms around disparagement and non-solicit, not disclosing trade secrets, those types of things can be incorporated into those agreements as well. When I think of this article, when I read it, I was like, oh, this is totally exactly like George Clooney and Anna Kendrick and Up oh in my the gosh. Air, right? Good movie. Yes. And, but, it, but it's so it's so funny because that was like the, I think the, the whole movie was, um, there was going through a shift of like, they didn't want to fly him over to, to do this this uh, standardized severance package or out, I don't know if he's really outplacement or if he yeah. was like HR or whatever, but they were just hired to come in and let people go. Which is what weird, an right? And I, and I think what we're talking about here is that we're seeing this transition from this standardized policy. Because uh, what this article said, was 65% in 2011 of the sample size said that they have some sort of formal severance package policy mm-hmm. in place. 55% at the time of this survey that we're talking about here. So there's a, a downward trend in, mm-hmm. in actual formal policies. And I, when I, I was talking about that movie, it's like, that's the old school way of probably doing it is you, you send in somebody to deliver the severance package, you sign something and the message and you're, you're on your way versus nowadays, what seems to be the right approach is a very custom and personalized approach. Like so-and-so you've been here 10 years, maybe benefits are important to you. Maybe it's something else, Mm -hmm. you know, look on a case by case basis. Would you think that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, we, we always want to be mindful of, What's been the past practice? What's the precedent that we've set for employees when they're leaving and for what types of reasons to ensure that there's no, 
you know, adverse impact against certain groups of people and, and we're paying attention to that. But I think for the most part, remaining flexible and, and making sure that it's a package that's going to be appealing because yeah. most of the time, the intent behind it is it's twofold. It's to support the employee with the transition, right? That's that's important. We want employees to leave the organization feeling whole and also to protect the company from risk. That's why we get that release of claims. So it's it's both sides that are important. That, that's an interesting distinction because you're basically saying like, okay, severance. On one, on one hand, you're kind of thinking like, okay, well you know, you're an at-will employee for the most part. And so you know, why can't you just cut ties and why is there anything that has to be paid out? But you're, but I think what you just said is a, an important distinction. You say like, there's a, there's risk associated with any, any termination, right? Absolutely. And so by doing the severance package, you're, you're giving a benefit for release of that, mm-hmm. essentially the risk. Right. And that's required. We can't request the release or ask for that without, without a giving something back. Yeah. Right. Okay, so let's talk about some of the, the, the stats, numbers yeah. that they look at. So they evaluated what what formula is used when they determine severance. So typically what we see is it's based on length of, of service, so yes, tenure. And that that's, that's what this survey says. So the number of weeks based on years of service for all employees, that was the 37% top. of the folks that responded to the survey said that that's how they determine the yeah. final severance payout. Um, then the the next was 25% said it's number of weeks by position level and years of service. I would have thought that would have been more popular. You know, I think organizations really, you know, the companies that I'm working with, they're really looking at what has been this person's contribution mm. as an employee here. And so you may have somebody who's recently been moved into a new position and not counting that time prior. I think that's probably where the, that, yeah, why that, that makes sense. Different. Smaller numbers, you know, we're looking at a flat number of weeks for all employees or a number of weeks by position level. So the majority is looking at tenure in, in their position or current yep. um, total years of experience. The next uh, data point that they looked at was how much time is given, right? For, and For years um, of service. Based on years yep. of service. I thought so, that was an interesting stat too. And this is totally in line with what I'm seeing too here in this marketplace. Yeah. So 51% said that they give one week for every year of service. 43% said that they give two weeks for every year of service. And usually when I'm advising clients, I say one to two weeks yeah. for every year well, of service. It was interesting, the huge range, because later on in the article, they had like a table that showed like the range in, mm-hmm. for years of service. And I thought it was like a huge range. So like in, if we take it on a year to year basis, they're saying like for every year, it's basically a range of like one to four weeks per mm-hmm. year. But, I mean, obviously the percentage of organizations doing it for the three to four weeks is not very much. It's one to two, but that's the range that we're dealing with. So for some companies that may offer a lot of benefits or maybe that Mm -hmm. releasing that risk is really important to them, they would offer four weeks for every year that they've been with the company. Right. And and the things that I'm looking at when I'm making a recommendation is what's the level of position, right? And the data shows here, obviously for a C-suite individual, yeah. it looks like the average minimum number of weeks is just shy of 23 weeks. So almost six months of pay. I wanted to debate that a little bit because I, on one hand, I get that because it's the seniority level. But my, in, my guess is that their, their severance would be pegged to what they make anyways, right? So why why would the number of weeks matter because they're going to if if it's 10 year you've been with the company 10 years and you're C level versus just a regular employee and okay you're going to get 10 weeks 
so-and-so is going to get 10 weeks that then the wages are going to be completely different mm-hmm. because so-and-so is making, you know, 30 bucks an hour. Whereas the sea level person was making 200 grand a year or something. Right. Why would it matter? Why, why more weeks? I think it could be a couple things. I think one more difficult for a C-suite individual to find a new job, right? There's less of those jobs available and yeah. the purpose is right to get them through until that next position. Makes sense. So that's part of it. I think it could also be that that's just what the trends are. And so an organization wanting to be able to remain competitive. So I think that could be part of it. Um, I also think the risk of a claim from a C-suite or higher level executive, oftentimes those employment claims are tied to annual salaries mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And so higher dollar value on the claim, if we really want to move that lever so that we're we're mitigating that risk for our organization, we're going to bump those, those numbers up. Plus, I think those folks in those high level positions are more likely, in, in my experience, to negotiate. So if I'm offering a severance to somebody, um, and let's say they're a non-exempt individual contributor, don't have any direct reports, probably have never seen a separation agreement before, they might not know that it is on the table for negotiation versus some of these exec folks who have their own general counsel, right? They've got attorneys they work with personally. They may know that they can move that lever. And so an organization might want to err on the side of offering more to avoid some of that back and forth. Two other observations in this article I thought was kind of interesting is that with the severance packages that of people or organizations that do offer it, they're they're not paying benefits essentially. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. they're not paying for health premiums. They're not doing any cobra anything like right. that. But they tend to offer outplacement support. Yeah, we've so, seen that okay. shift. Um, and there are organizations here in town and and probably all over that can offer different types of packages to folks in terms of what outplacement services are needed. Whether it's just general like resume support or even sort of that full suite of services where they're they're helping you you know be out there in the market. But yeah, offering cobra especially because, you know, with the Affordable Care Act and waiting periods have just significantly gone down, folks are able to hop onto their new employer's yeah. health plan pretty quickly. Yeah. The other thing I noticed was that in terms of communicating severance policies, the the handbook and then maybe some online resources, but otherwise it's not really communicated whatsoever. Right. <laughs> yep. And I, I think a lot of that is because many organizations don't have a policy Either around that. Either that or it's just, it's so negative that you don't really want to talk about it in advance. You talk about it when the time comes. Yeah, Yeah. right. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Anything else (laughs) that you want to talk about on this? No, no. I just thought it was interesting and it it was nice to kind of see that what we're seeing here in the market and with our clients at Zenium is in line with what Sherm's reporting. Yep. Cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up our discussion with one more article and the title of this is the Swedish CEO who runs his company like a CrossFit gym and this is by Carl Cedarstrom and Torkild Thanum. Sorry for the butchering of the names. This I don't is, think I could work at this company. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to preface uh, with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is in the Harvard Business Review. So I found this uh, last night when I was kind of looking for some interesting topics. So basically, this this follow this article follows uh, Henrik Bunge. He is the CEO of Bjorn Borg. <laughs> They're a Swedish sports fashion company. And basically, the gist of this is he created what's called Sports Hour, and it's a mandatory fitness class for all employees every Friday between 11 and noon. And so he took over as CEO in 2014 is what it sounds like. And in that time, the business 
as he took it over, wasn't doing well whatsoever. And so he was like, okay, business isn't in great shape. Well, let's maybe uh, we should get in great shape. Yeah. So they, they had goals to double in sales and have 90% employee engagement within five years time of him being CEO. And uh, so the goal was with this sports hour thing to train harder to measure their goals better mm-hmm. and become a better team. So everybody had to do sports hour. Everybody had to participate, <laughs> which is probably on the surface for a lot of people who are non-athletic. It's pr- pretty intimidating. Yeah. But it, he's he's making the assumption that there's a, a causation, a cause-effect relationship maybe or correlation between sports, uh, being athletic and moving and engagement and mm-hmm. business results. So... And the other, I think the other thing, it was a culture-based thing. It was like having fun and, and working Team together work. as a team, all those things that would foster like kind of a strong bond between people. And mm-hmm. it would ultimately allow people to, to reach their goals. So you read, you read this article, it's a pretty short article. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this on the server? You just said like you couldn't work there. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, was an athlete growing up yeah. and, and, you know, go to the gym, I work out. Um, I but work I just, out. I know so, I know so many people that would have a hard time with this and then I also then my HR side of me is like well what about somebody who physically can't do it and what if they have a disability and and how can we accommodate that and and if it's mandatory you know usually you think about programs that aren't mandatory but employees are you know encouraged to get involved and get engaged that that creates a more genuine and authentic engagement versus I don't know. When, for me, I don't know. Maybe it was the mandatory piece that felt a little it's, like it's there was forced, a rub. Yeah. I do like he makes a point in there about athletes always knowing what their stats are. Like yes. they always know truth to that. where they're at. And if you go up and ask an employee, how, how are you doing? You get sort of this like gray, wishy-washy response, even employees who get regular performance reviews. Yeah. And I think that's because supervisors aren't skilled in yeah. giving in the moment feedback. That's the challenge. So if that is shifting the way that his organization and, and employees can articulate how they're doing and they know what they need to be working on, I could see a benefit there. I could too. I mean, I, I love sports for that very reason. It's like I was a baseball player back in the day and like stat friendly, you know, you, you know, like I was a pitcher, <laughs> so you know what your ERA is or how many strikeouts you have. You'd have mm-hmm. all these metrics that tell you if you're doing good or not. Right. And I think <laughs> the if you're so consumed with the sports world, maybe that'll rub off on the business side. I, I have a hard time believing that because I, I mean, I do fantasy football all the time and I pay attention to sports and I'm doing all that stuff. But yet there's still times where I'm like, how do I get a metric out of what I'm doing sometimes yes. to, to focus on the results oriented thing? And I so I, I find this a little far-fetched. Uh, I think it could drive engagement maybe, or it could drive a certain type of person that maybe fits their culture. I think it's more of a culture play than anything else. Well, when else. he talks about they've like, they had like 25% yeah, turnover in yeah. the very beginning and they were, it seemed like they were okay with it. I think, I, I think it would be, I don't know if it's fair to say that that's the result of this program that he's implemented. It's more likely tied to new leadership comes in that shakes things up. We've got new expectations and some folks self-select out and some folks are exited out, but 25% turnover in yeah. any industry is That's significant. High. So I, I read that too. And and I think what they were saying is almost like a healthy turnover, according <laughs> to them. Like yeah. I think they lost the people that probably didn't fit their culture, mm-hmm. that they wanted to do the CrossFit type thing yeah. and then you know work hard. And uh, so then they're saying like, okay, well, then we got to pick new staff. And that was during like two years. So 2014 to 2016. I'm curious where they're at now. But they've said that 
net sales and employee engagement have increased, but the only problem is that there's no like peer reviewed evidence that suggests that this is making them happy or it's driving all this. So the problem I always think with like these, these one-off metrics and these stories is that you can't, you often confuse cause with effect Mm -hmm. and, and you'll say like, Oh, well things are moving up in the same direction. So they must be cause effect, but they're just, randomly correlated with one another they could be randomly correlated yeah and we we talked i think in our last podcast where we were talking about articles about engagement too and i think it can't be a one-size-fits-all it can't be hr can't and and employee programs can't be it worked at this company so it's going to work here so maybe depending on the kind of organization you you have this type of thing would work i have a lot of clients where i could see actually employees become disengaged if we implemented a program like this. Hey, look at me. I, I, I like exercising. I like team sports. I like a lot of stuff, but I couldn't imagine like, okay, I'm going to tie right now and, you know, <laughs> long sleeve shirt and dress pants. Like I wouldn't want to in the middle of my day get sweaty. No. And then like, unless you have beautiful locker rooms and stuff, it's just inconvenient. I think what you would have to have is really, you know, the facility that encouraged it. You'd have to have schedules where people didn't feel like doing something like that was going to be a challenge. I mean, I think about, so then do employees also take a lunch if they're non-exempt? If we've got this person that's doing the workout, that's that's paid time. I mean, there are a lot of nuances to a program like this that I think would need to be pretty thought out before it got rolled out. The interesting thing this article said was that there's a growing trend in these CEOs that are very fitness oriented. (laughs) So... I mean, especially probably in the Silicon Valley area. Yeah, yeah, or in in industries where you know they're tied to sports or yep. or athletics. I could see it maybe being a thing. Yeah, and this is like a, they do sports apparel, I think, in in Sweden. So it, it maybe is, they don't have is. the same employment laws there, right? You like we, don't, I'm not a specialist in in employment law yeah. over in in that area. So maybe they don't have as many rules that Absolutely. we would have to to deal with like we do over here. I do think it's interesting, and I you know I commend people, especially leaders who are trying something new. Yeah, it may not work. It it, I mean, I have a hard time believing it would work or at least drive the engagement or culture that you're looking for. But hey, why not try it? I mean, you might yeah. attract a certain kind of person and you might rally a bunch of people around it. So it could work. It could work. Yeah, I think trying new things is, is important to keep the organization sustainable. Absolutely. Well, cool, Lacey. This, is, um, this has been a fun second episode of yep. uh, What's Up in the Workplace. And we'll, um, we'll catch you in another month, right? Yeah, where, sounds where good. Where can people find you? Uh, on LinkedIn. And we, you know, we've said people have sent us these articles. So other articles yes. that folks have, please send them our way. We would love to, to chat about them on the podcast. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, Be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.